Well, good morning. For those of you who are visiting, my name is Ryan Limbaugh. I'm the pastor here at Redeemer Church, and so glad that you're here with us. Very excited to see every one of you this morning. I just want to begin by saying that uh, in the world of professional and collegiate sports, success and failure is measured by one thing, wins and losses. Wins and losses. That's really all that matters. And so you're a success if you win, and you're a a failure if you lose. Now, I have my own thoughts about that. I really do. I'm not going to talk about that today. But I want to tell you that yesterday, the Friendship Fest at Redeemer Church was a win for Redeemer Church. It was a win. Yeah. It was really good. Um, If you look on our wall over here, we exist to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people through worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission And yesterday, as we uh, worked and served and enjoyed each other, we fulfilled all of those four aspects. You know, worship is a celebration of our relationship with the covenant God, with the God of the gospel. So we're worshiping when we're preparing a meal. We're worshiping when we're getting an inflatable ready. We're worshiping when we're around one another, serving arm in arm and side by side. And as we talk with one another, as we enjoy one another, as we talk about Christ to other people, we're fellowshipping. And then we're growing in discipleship. You know that when young people saw older people serving yesterday, and when young people went beside older people and helped with a booth, they're being discipled and what it means to, to love God and to serve God and all those things. And, you know, yesterday we had probably about 20 different family units from, from the friendship community who visited yesterday. And we had probably 500 or 1,000 people that drove by and saw what was going on in this campus. And that was our attempt at mission. We want to love the people in this community. And I just want to say that as your pastor, as, as one who loves you and shepherds you, I was really thankful for you yesterday. And so I just want to say glory to God for that. And I think that it's, it's ironic that we come to a passage in the Gospel of Mark today whereby we see not only what it means to represent Christ and to be on mission for Christ, but what might happen when you do preach Christ and when you're on mission for Him. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 29 this morning. And if you're visiting with us, just want to let you know a little bit about what we believe about preaching. We believe what Hebrews 4 says. We believe that the Word of God is powerful. All right, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. That it divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We believe that the Word of God is inspired by God. That it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness and so what we do every Sunday is we open up the scriptures we read it we explain it and we apply it we we, we don't talk about things that aren't unrelated to the scriptures we don't um, pontificate about what we think or or what we think's going on with the world we simply read the word we explain it and we apply it because we believe it's the word of God that changes our lives so that's what we're going to do today We're going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 29 in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is really just showing out in ministry so far as we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark. He is preaching the Gospel. He is healing the sick. He is raising the dead. He has done some remarkable things. He has driven demons out of demon-possessed people. This man who is also God is doing an amazing work. 
And so we pick up in chapter 6, verse 1, and it says, He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, John, whom I beheaded, he's been raised. For it was Herod who had sinned and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she couldn't. Because Herod feared John, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. This is all men. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... This was not the electric slide. This was not the moonwalk. This was a dance that was seductive. This was a dance that was uh, alluring to men. When she came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. 
And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, you're either a follower of Jesus Christ or you're not. It's, it's, either, it's either one of, of two ways there. If you're a follower of Christ, you are by very nature an ambassador of Christ. Make no mistake about it. If you're a follower, you are an ambassador, which means you represent Jesus Christ. You represent His identity. He is both God and man. How is He both God and man? Only God knows. But He is fully God. He is fully man. You represent His character. He is perfect. The Scripture says that there is no deceit in Him. There is no flaw in Him. He is unstained, unflawed. He is loving. He, the Scripture says that because He loved us, He came and entered life with us and lived life as us and lived perfectly and holy and lovingly. You not only represent His character and His identity, but you represent His work. The Scripture says that Jesus Christ became sin on our behalf so that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He substituted Himself on our behalf. This whole service so far this morning, if you've been meditating and thinking, has been focused on two things. Our sinfulness and Christ's righteousness. Our sinfulness, Christ's righteousness, and what the work of Jesus is, is that He substituted Himself in our place and he made himself to be a sinner. Even though he was flawless, even though he was sinless, he made himself sin. He was persecuted. He was killed and murdered as a sinner in our behalf so that we might take on his righteousness. So that we could have his. And then as he satisfied the righteous wrath of his father on the cross, he finally breathed his wrath on, on the cross. He said, it is finished. And then they took him down from the cross, put him in a tomb, and he was there on Friday night and Saturday night. But on Sunday, he was raised from the dead and he defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated hell. He defeated the power of all of those things. And if you're a follower of Christ, you are an ambassador of that message, of that work. So it is the work of Christ. It is the, the perfections of Christ. It is the identity of Christ that you represent everywhere that you go. Inherently, you carry that message with you, and you are to bear that message everywhere that you go. Now, you do this in two ways. You do it two ways. By the life that you live, by the life that you live, and the message that you preach. That's how you do it. And I think it's very important for every ambassador of Christ in the building today to understand 
that you have to do it in both ways. You can't say, well, I'm going to just live a life that honors Christ, and that'll be my way to be his ambassador. Or you can't say, well, I'm just going to preach the message of Christ, and I'm not going to worry about how I live. The scriptures indicate that it is the life that you live and the message that you preach, and as you live the life of Christ and preach the message of Christ, that's when you're really an ambassador of Christ. So it's that two-prone, complementary nature of your ambassadorship. Now, if you are an ambassador of Christ, there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. And that's what this text is teaching us. There is a high price to pay to be an ambassador of Christ. All right? And so there are, are three difficult results. If you're thinking about an outline this morning from our text, there are three difficult results for living a gospel life and preaching a gospel message. For living a gospel life and preaching a gospel message. And the first difficult result, as we see in verses 1 to 6, is that your friends may take offense at you. Your friends may take offense at you. They took offense at Jesus. I mean, Jesus was an ambassador of Christ. He was Christ. He wasn't just saying, I represent God. He's saying, I am God. And so he comes to his own hometown. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He, he made his hub of ministry in Capernaum. But where he grew up was Nazareth. Historians tell us that Nazareth probably had, was a town of about 500 people. 500-ish people. I mean, it was, it was smaller than Shinbunk or maybe about the size, or, or, or if you go down to Hollis Crossroads, it's about the, about the population of people who live around Hollis Crossroads. It's a small area. I mean, some people have called it just a, a backwater town in and around the area of Galilee. And yet Jesus of Nazareth grows up there. He grows up. And he's a, he's a carpenter because his dad is a carpenter. Joseph is a carpenter. And... And so Jesus goes back there because his sisters are there, his brothers are there, his family is all there, his friends that he grew up around are there, the synagogue that he grew up in was there. And so he goes back after being popular. Jesus has gone all over the region of Galilee. He's traveled across the Sea of Galilee. I mean, he is wildly popular at this point. I mean, his popularity is sky high. He, is, he has healed people. He has risen people from the dead. He has expelled demons from people. He has preached the gospel, and many of people have gotten saved. I mean, his popularity level could not be higher. And then he steps back into his hometown, and his friends and his family members are like, who do you think you are? If you just look back down at the text in verses 1 to 6, it says that he went away from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him, and he began to teach in the synagogue. What did he teach? He talked the gospel. He talked the good news that he is here. In, in the book of Luke, we see that he actually comes into the synagogue about a year earlier and reads from Isaiah 61. He reads from Isaiah 61 where Isaiah is talking about the Messiah who is to come, the Savior, the one who will deliver people from their, their sins. And Jesus sits down and then he says, this word has been fulfilled in your presence. That's the kind of things that Jesus was teaching. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. Put your trust in me and you can have life eternal. Put your trust in me and you can have a home in heaven. Put your trust in me and you can be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what he's teaching. And you know, you would think that people from the hometown, hometown Nazareth, would give him a hero's welcome. They would be like, amen, glory to God. 
Uh, you, we, we knew you when you were just this little high. That's not their reaction. Look at what they ask. They ask five questions. Where'd this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? Are not his sisters right here with us? Th these are questions that accuse Jesus. These are questions that are not just in respect and in reverence to him. They're like, hey, we know this guy. And y'all, that's why Jesus gives us the principle. Jesus gives us the principle that, that a prophet is, is not without honor except in his own hometown, except in his own household and in his own family. It's an amazing thing and an astonishing thing. But y'all, it even happens today. I mean, I town I grew up in, small town, and one of our guys has made it big. He's a NBA basketball player and has made millions of dollars, has come back to live in our hometown. And you would think that everybody would be wildly crazy about him. But in reality, there are people that live in the same town as him and don't even like him. They, they don't even, they, they're jealous of him and things like that. And, and I think it's a shame. Uh, I think it's a real shame, but it's the heart of man. It's just the heart of man. There, there have been politicians who've lived around here. We've even had a governor close to us and I, who grew up uh, close to us. And, and there have been people who have just despised him because they were in first grade with him. And they remember when he cheated off them in a test or something. It's just, you know, people are just that way. But you would think that with the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the one who delivers people from their sins, it would be different. But it's not. Look at the end of verse 3. It says that they took offense at him. The Greek word there is skandalizo. Skandalizo, it's where we get our word scandalous or to scandalize. They thought his teaching and his preaching and him propping up himself as this Savior was an absolute scandal. And it became a roadblock to them. And they, they would not believe because they knew who he was and they knew that he was a carpenter and a carpenter's son and some of their cousins had married his sisters and, and all of that. And this was their roadblock. But notice the response of Jesus. If you look back down at the text, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And so he, he taught this principle of honor and dishonor and then look, he had a limited healing ministry. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. Your friends may take offense at you if you represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just write it down, all right? Take note of it and don't be surprised about it when it happens, all right? But this is what I want to I call you to today. As an ambassador of Christ, Take the gospel to your friends and family. Take it to them. Preach it. Live it. Talk to them about it. As I said, a year earlier, Jesus went to, went to Nazareth. A year earlier, he stood in the synagogue and he taught and he preached and he opened the gospel message to them. And does anybody know what his townspeople did to him a year earlier? What's that? Yes, they took him to the edge of town and tried to stone him to death. Somehow Jesus made his way back through the crowd and escaped. Jesus didn't say, I'm never going back there again. He comes back a year later, goes to the same synagogue, and shares the gospel with his family and with his friends and with his neighbors. Why? Because he had a burden for their souls. Listen, 
God has strategically placed you in the family that you're in. He has strategically placed you with the friends that you have. He has strategically placed you on the street that you live on, in the job place that you have. Why? Because you're an ambassador of Christ. You represent Him. And if you're not going to share the gospel with these people, if you're not going to share the love of Christ with these people, who is? You are sovereignly and providentially positioned in your station in life to bring the life-saving message of Christ. And so I encourage you to take it to them. I just want to give you a couple practical things to do in that way. I would call you to write down on a piece of paper every name of a person in your family and a person who is your friend and a person that you work with who needs to know Jesus Christ. Write them down. Take your iPhone, take your smartphone, and scroll through all of your phone lists and write down everybody that you know or are friends with who needs Jesus. Write them down on a piece of paper and begin to pray for them. Pray for those people every week. Pray, God, give me opportunities. God, give me grace to be an ambassador. God, give me grace to live a life that is, that is authentic before them and give me boldness to share the gospel with them. And then pursue them with the gospel. And then, the second thing that I would say is, in addition to taking the gospel to your friends and family, expect resistance from some of them. Just, just expect it. Just know, before you go and share the gospel with them, that it's very possible, if not likely, that they're going to resist you. They're going to resist you and your message. Now, I want to make just a, one point of clarification. And this is not a rebuke. I think I've said this before in myself, but this is not a rebuke if you've said this before. But sometimes we say, when these people reject you and you're giving them the gospel, just remember they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting your Savior. Y'all have heard that statement before, right? I just want to make one point of clarification. They are rejecting you. You know why they're rejecting you? Because you have Christ in you. You belong to Christ. He owns you. That's your identity. You're an ambassador of His. So, so don't divorce yourself from Jesus Christ. You are His mouthpiece. You are His hands and His feet. So that when they reject you, you can say, they are rejecting me because I belong to Christ. And that's just a point of clarification. And so expect resistance of some kind. And then thirdly, I would just say, understand that unbelief Understand that unbelief is a spiritual disease of the heart. Unbelief is a spiritual disease of the heart. I mean, y'all, we need to understand that there's this thing called depravity. D-E-P-R-A-V-I-T-Y. Depravity. It means that human beings live in darkness. They, they live in sin. Human beings live in, in, not in light, not in life, but in death and in darkness. Is because our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then God says, I, the Lord, I search the heart. I know the thoughts of man. And so y'all, when people reject you, when, when people say, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with you. What is this message? Where is he from? Is this not so-and-so? Did I not grow up with her? Did I not play basketball with him? Just know that unless God does a work of regeneration in their heart, 
Just know that if God doesn't come in and change their heart and transform them and do heart surgery and take that heart of stone and that heart of clay and that heart of hardness and transfer it into a heart of, of flesh, a heart of sensitivity, that, that it doesn't matter what you say. But know that God is going to use His Word. He's going to use His Spirit to transform their hearts. And so understand that it's a spiritual disease. You don't have to get everything right. I'm just trying to relieve some pressure from you guys. It's not about how you package your message. It's not about exactly the wording that you use or how you bring. It's about declaring the glory of Christ. It's about declaring the sovereignty of God. It's about declaring the need for a Savior. It's about declaring the need to repent and believe in Christ alone. And if you simply call people to that, God uses His Word to bring people to Christ. And so... The last thing I want to say under this is don't get too discouraged. Don't get too discouraged because Jesus was the perfect evangelist. And he got rejected. And so as we knock on doors, as we visit with friends, as we see family members, let's realize that we're going to be rejected as well. So your friends may take offense at you. If you look down at verses 7 through 13, your community may reject you as well. Your community may reject you. If you just kind of put your eyes on verse 7 and following, you see that the, first of all that the 12 are called to Jesus. These are the 12 disciples. And I love the fact that Jesus calls the 12 to Himself first. He calls them to Himself first and foremost. Alright? And so, it's very important that we understand that spending time with Jesus... And having fellowship with Jesus and worshiping Jesus as He is must precede going out and representing Jesus. We have to be in a love relationship with Him. We must be. We must be enthralled by His grace to us. We must be enamored by His love for us. We, we must enjoy the fact that He wants to spend time with us. And, and He does that primarily through prayer and scripture reading, and meditation, and the fellowship of the saints, and the taking of communion, and watching baptisms when those happen. He infuses us with an energy of being with Himself. And then once we're with Himself, He called the twelve, then He commissions the twelve. He commissions you to go out. And that's exactly what He does. And He sends them out two by two. I love that standard that He sets there. Because it is so easy to get personally discouraged in evangelism and in mission. It is just easy. And I, I, Phil and I have been going out now for, I don't know, a couple months now, Phil, you think, uh, going door to door and knocking on doors, and I know that there is a synergy that happens when two people go out in the gospel rather than just one person. There's encouragement that happens. There's motivation. There's accountability. I know that when he and I have been sharing the gospel, it's been really encouraging to see where, like, wherever I leave off, or wherever I might be stumbling, Phil will just pick right up and go with the message of the gospel and encourage people. And I, I think that it's a principle that we should, we should live by and try to walk by. And, that's, and that is to go two by two. And just to encourage people in the gospel in that way. For effectiveness and encouragement. Notice what else Jesus does here. He, he gives them authority. Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits. How is it that Jesus gave them authority? Is because He is the God of authority. Y'all, it's very important that you know as an ambassador of Christ that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. 
Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. So whenever you knock on a door or you shake one, a person's hand at Oxford Lake, or no matter what, where you are at a school or at your job place, realize the inherent authority that you have. And realize, realize the blessing, realize the, the power that's in the message, and go with excitement, go with zeal. I know that uh, last month I went and, and helped my dad, who lives in another county, uh, knock on doors to run for county commissioner. It was the primaries, and, and uh, Carson and I went, and we put on these t-shirts that had my dad's name on it, and we knocked on doors and just handed them a card and said we would appreciate your consideration on Tuesday for the vote, and and I will tell you, Carson and I both were excited to do it. We know my dad. We love him. We think he's a great guy. We think he'd make a good commissioner and, and all of that. And so we were excited to do it. But how much more should we be excited? How much more should we have a sense of authority? How much more should we be zealous to knock on a door, to shake a person's hand when we know the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is, stands over all, who is in heaven, in His throne room, looking down and one day is going to return on a white horse where He is going to judge the living and the dead? How much more should we be excited that we represent Him and that we bear His authority inherently? And so the twelve are commissioned by Jesus but they're also warned. If you have your Bibles, look down at verse 10. He says, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. He is warning them that they are going to be rejected. Just as he was rejected in Nazareth, his hometown, they're going to be rejected in the places that they go. And he tells them, this is what you need to do. Now, just by way of those of you who are wanting to know, why does he tell them not to take all this stuff with him? He's saying, listen, if you're going to live by the gospel, then you need to be supported by people who support the gospel and who love the gospel. But it was a common practice in first century for Jewish rabbis who had to walk through Gentile lands or Samaritan, uh, or uh, yeah, Samaritan lands, that if, they, if their sandals or their feet hit Samaritan land or Gentile land, when they crossed back over into Judea and Jerusalem, they would, take, they would take their sandals off and they would dust it off like that to get all of the sinfulness and all of the, the uncleanness off of them and then they would put their sandals back on to walk into Jerusalem so that they could make the place clean and not make it dirty. Well, first of all, they were sinful in and of themselves. I'm not saying that was a great practice, but what Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, you know that the Jewish rabbis do that and they do it for external purposes and purposes of pride, but I want you to do it as a symbol that they have rejected me, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so listen, y'all, we need to be a lot less fearful of people and a lot more confident in our great Savior. And we need to go door to door and job to job and neighborhood to neighborhood and proclaim the good work of the Lord Jesus. Let me just say a couple things before we go to this last section. First, you've got to be in fellowship with Jesus before you can be in mission or on mission for Jesus. I want to call every follower of Jesus here today to cultivate a real love for Christ. Cultivate 
an enjoyment of your prayer life. Cultivate an enjoyment of taking the gospel, reading the gospel of John or the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Luke or the gospel of Matthew and seeing all the glories of your Savior and reveling in that and then meditating on it in prayer so that you can can learn more about your Savior. Because the more you spend time with Him and in Him, in His Word, the greater evangelist and personal mission that you'll be. I fear that the reason that we are not effective at evangelism and at missions is because we don't know what it's like to be in love relationship with Jesus. And so we try to go out and do missions and do evangelism with an empty tank. So I call you to develop that in your life. One pastor said it is impossible to be an effective soul winner without living daily in the Word, knowing daily the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and enjoying daily the presence of Jesus Christ. And then, uh, by way of encouragement, I also say, find a partner with whom you can go preach the gospel. Find a partner. If it's your spouse, awesome. If it's one of your children, awesome. If it's one of your best friends, awesome. But find a partner that you can regularly go and share the gospel with. This was the method that Jesus laid out in these verses. And it's also a method that will be effective and encouraging in your own own life and in your own heart. But I want to say this, that it is a fact that you're not on a mission to be liked. You're not on a mission to be loved. You're not on a mission to be appreciated. You're on a mission to extend the sovereign grace of Almighty God to people who are in desperate need of it. Remember that as you go out. Finally, the third difficult result is that your authorities may persecute you. Your authorities may persecute you. I believe that what Mark is is showing here is a progression. He shows that Jesus offends those in his own hometown. And then he shows that the disciples are rejected when they go from community to community. And then he inserts this true story about John the Baptist and says this is the ultimate rejection. You may be murdered. You may be killed because of your testimony for God and your testimony for Christ. Let me just tell you a few things about what's related here in this story. Herod has a guilty conscience. All right, Herod is a tetrarch. He's a ruler in the area around Galilee. And I just want you to know that Herod is not the only Herod. There are many Herods uh, in the Bible and in the New Testament. It was Herod the Great, this Herod's father, who actually sent out an edict that tried to kill every male baby born in the area because he had heard that Jesus was born. You guys remember that story? That was this Herod's dad. This Herod, who is Herod Antipas, he was on a trip with um, his family to Rome to visit his brother Philip. And he began to be enamored by Philip's wife. And Philip's wife, whose name was Herodias, began to be enamored by him. And they struck up this love relationship with each other Never mind the fact that Herodias was married to Philip and Herod had another wife, Eretus' daughter. And so they both divorced each other's spouses and married one another. And Herodias moved in with Herod. They went back to Galilee and they established their life. And Herodias brought her daughter, who was by Philip, with her to be part of the family. 
And so John the Baptist was preaching the gospel. And he was declaring the authority of Christ. But he was a holy man as well, and he preached righteousness. And so, and so Herod, he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist because John the Baptist was a powerful preacher. John the Baptist was a holy man. If you've ever heard a powerful preacher and a holy man stand up and give a message from God, you realize you're listening to it when you listen to it. All right, it was like, um, who was the man? I can't remember what atheist it was who listened to George Whitfield preach. And, and uh, who was it? Maybe Ben Franklin. Yeah, and so um, somebody said to Ben Franklin, why are you listening to George Whitfield when he preaches every time he comes into town? I didn't think that you believed it. He said, well, I don't really believe it, but he obviously believes it, and he compels me to come and listen to him the way that he preaches. Well, that's the way John the Baptist was. He was a compelling man, a compelling preacher. He was a holy man, and he didn't back down from anything. And so not only did he proclaim the preeminence of Christ, he also was not scared to say, Herod, what you're doing is wrong. You have taken your brother's wife. You have improperly divorced your own wife in order to be with this woman, and this goes against the righteousness of God. You need to repent. You need to repent and be forgiven of your sins and call on Christ so that you can be saved. Now, the thing was this. That offended Herod, but because he knew John the Baptist was a holy man and he was from God, he was unwilling to just get rid of John the Baptist. But Herodias was putting pressure on Herod. Herodias was saying, you've got to get rid of him. You've got to kill him. You, you, he's going to destroy you. He's going to destroy us. And what was reality is Herodias thought that the more John the Baptist preached and had influence with Herod, that in fact Herod might get rid of Herodias. And so she's trying to do everything that she can to twist her husband's arm to get rid of this man who might ultimately be getting rid of her. And so Mark wants to show us that she is trying to scheme her way to find out a way to get rid of John the Baptist, and the birthday party is the way to do it. And so this birthday party happens, and all of these rulers and these city officials and these important men gather around, no women involved in this party. There's a lot of wine involved. There's a lot of laughing, certainly crude joking. And all, all, all of a sudden comes in Herodias' daughter, Salome. And she puts on this dance that is erotic in nature, that all of the men are just swayed by and, and uh, influenced by. And, and Herod is so pleased with it that he becomes so foolish that he says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Well, the fact is he didn't even really have a kingdom. It wasn't his to give. He was kind of a puppet king. But he said it in order to make himself sound really important to all these dignitaries. And he also said it because he just was foolish at the time. And because Herodias was in uh, her daughter's ear all the time, because her daughter knew that Herodias wanted John the Baptist gone, she went and consulted her mom. And her mom knew exactly what to tell her. But I, I also thought it was interesting that Herodias' daughter had a flair for the dramatic and also had some boldness as well because Herodias di didn't say, I want his head on a platter, I just want his head. The daughter added the platter part. Did you know that? I want this to be ostentatious. I want this to be public. I want this to be uh, glorious in nature. I want the, the man of God, the holy man, the righteous preacher's head on a platter. And, and look down at the very end of the passage, y'all. The king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. 
brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. That is a sad ending. That is a very non-climactic ending for such a, a difficult story. It's like, what is going on here? And I believe that Mark is trying to show us, even today, 2,000 years later, that when you live for Christ and you're an ambassador for the Lord Jesus, terrible things may happen. And it's not always going to be glorious. And it may have a terrible and tragic and brutal ending. And you just need to know that. And you need to embrace that. So many people come to Christ on their own terms and in their own way. And they have this idea of what Christianity is going to be like. They think that they're going to, they're going to walk with a little lighter step. They're going to float on a little higher cloud. They're, they're, they're going to get a little richer. They're going to get a little better. They're going to get a little bit more good looking because they come to Christ and life is just going to be this wonderful thing. John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the most righteous man who ever lived. And what happened to him? He's not only executed, he is beheaded. And then the disciples, with kind of a nondescript way, come in and take his body and, and bury him with really just a nondescript kind of burial. Y'all, if you're an ambassador of Christ, your authorities may persecute you. Just look at the news. Hobby Lobby, David Green, Barack Obama. These things can happen. They very likely will happen in our day. If you're an ambassador for Christ, your friends may take offense at you, your community may reject you, your authorities may persecute you. But be encouraged. You are not on the side of the world. You are not on the side of Satan. You are on the side of the Savior of the world. You're on the side of the Lord of the universe. You belong to Him. You represent Him. Go in His power. I want to ask you to stand with me right now. Phil, if you would come up and lead us in a time of celebration, of singing as ambassadors for Christ. Right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would like you to spend some time as we sing this song in meditation on your calling. And know that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can represent Jesus in this world regardless of the rejection that you face.